Hello, welcome to the Leading for Resilience podcast, where we ask senior decision makers to share their thinking on what kind of leadership builds resilience in this time of permacrisis. I'm Shazre Cumberhill, Director for Strategy and Impact at Resilience First. And I'm Peter Willis, based in Cape Town, a senior associate of Resilience First and the founder of Conversations That Count. Today, we're joined by Dame Joe De Silva. Joe is the Global Sustainable Development Leader at Arup, which is a global collective of design, engineering, and sustainability consultants dedicated to using imagination, technology, and rigor to shape a better world. Joe leads the firm's activities to address the climate, biodiversity, and equity crises through creating safe, inclusive, and resilient communities while safeguarding the planet. Welcome, Joe. Pleasure to be here. Hello, Joe. I feel I've got to begin uh, for our audience sake by declaring that you and I have collaborated in all manner of ways since about 2006, if I'm not mistaken. Most recently in the six months running up to COP26 in Glasgow in 2021, where as part of an innovative climate leadership project, you and I had a half hour conversation online every fortnight, thinking together about what it means to be a leader facing into the climate crisis. I think it's also important that our listeners know that while you are a decorated structural engineer with some big projects to your name, for the last 15 years or so, you've been just as well known, I would say, for having started Arup's International Development Department, and before that, for being a pioneer of rapid, innovative engineering responses to major natural disasters in developing countries. I want to ask you, what is it about these big, difficult challenges that you find so attractive, Joe? <laughs> Gosh, that's a question to start with. Someone wrote on an appraisal in my early career, Joe thrives on complexity. And I think that it was probably one of the sort of truest things that anyone said about me. Even though I'm trained as an engineer and therefore trained to be reductionist, as my career has developed, I realized that, you know, the world is not straightforward and doesn't, isn't a simple cause and effect. And, you know, complexity is much more interesting. Also, you know, my passion in life is, you know, I have sort of two passions. One is nature and the other is design. I love being in nature, whether that's climbing or mountaineering. And I love creating and designing things. And nature is all about complexity. You know, in my early career, I had the opportunity to live and work in India and lived in the jungle for nine months, which was an incredibly sort of formative experience because living that closely with nature, I really appreciated those interactions. But as an engineer and designer, I'm also very pragmatic and I want to create solutions. And what drives me at the moment is simply an appreciation of the very real challenges we face, whether that's with, with respect to climate or with respect to nature loss or inequity, lack of fairness in the world. And I want to be able to do my bit. I want to be able to make a meaningful contribution so that I can look my kids in the eye when I exit stage left and say, you know, I, I did my bit. And really, I've always been driven by that, by, by the desire. I'm very purposeful <laughs> and I believe in making a contribution. And that's really been sort of, my, those are really my two foundations, purpose and contribution. You're not one to shy away from challenges, Joe. And I believe you've said in the past that You've accepted that Titanic is sinking and that you've chosen to man the lifeboats. What does it feel like to have been manning the lifeboats on some of 
the most kind of biggest challenges of our time for as long a time as you have been? And, and how has that changed over the years? Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that, you know, life's a journey and careers are simply the dots you join when you look back through the rearview mirror. You take a journey through life and you accumulate sort of experience as you go. In my 20s, as a young engineer, I joined in a charity called Redar, Registered Engineers for Disaster Relief, which sends engineers out to post-disaster situations. And in 1994, I was sent out to northwest Tanzania during the Rwandan genocide. And when I was there, there were tens of thousands of refugees that had come across the border um, with nothing, fleeing a genocide. And I woke up to the fact that we as human beings need food, water, shelter, energy in order to survive. And that relies on buildings and roads and bridges and power lines and water storage tanks, which is, is the things that engineers create. And so I sort of came back from that experience being very lucky that I had those skills. And when I was out there, I was one of three engineers amongst quite a big humanitarian community of doctors and logistics experts who had those skills. And I realized that even though I was quite young, that by standing up and saying, convincing people to follow me, I could actually make a difference. And I continued to feel that way. When I worked for the United Nations in Sri Lanka after the tsunami, there were nearly half a million people displaced. And there were over 100 agencies who were trying to build shelter for those half a million people. But actually, it needed somebody to stand up and, and quantify the problem and to say, well, how 500 people displaced, how does that translate into numbers of host families and numbers of shelters? And how many can we practically build in what time and how much material do we need? And it's that pragmatic approach that I think is missing and needed in terms of the climate crisis at the moment. We're having lots of conversation about the problem still. <laughs> we you know the science is, is self-evident, but I think we actually need to be thinking about the solutions and translating it into the numbers of wind turbines that we need and how quickly we can build those wind turbines. And what are the what is the policy environment? What is the financial environment that is going to actually enable the flows of money and the incentives to get people to invest in that infrastructure and move more quickly? And one of the tragedies is that we don't have enough engineers in leadership positions, particularly in governments, particularly in the United Nations, barring the Secretary General himself. So there's a lot of a lot of the conversation is dominated by people with, who are economists or scientists, but it's very infrequent that there are engineers as part of that conversation. I'm not saying the engineers can do it on their own, but we need to get this cross-professional perspective in order to come up with solutions and, and plans, tangible, practical plans with milestones so that we can really say, are we doing enough? And at the moment, I feel that the thing we're monitoring is the commitments that people are making rather than the action that is being taken. Can I jump in there, Shazri? There's a question that's arisen for me listening to you there, Joe, which is that you're in your early career, you got involved in these extraordinarily intense, traumatic 
large-scale natural disasters. And what you've just talked about is the, the ref, your reflection on the, the role that you, you could play and that engineers could play and so on. And then when you moved on to talk about climate change, you're talking there about um, effectively sort of mitigation responses, like we've really got to start building quickly the means by which we're going to scale down our emissions and so on. And I was waiting for the bit where you were going to say, so climate is this kind of a large-scale natural disaster, but of course, it's much more complex than that. And I wonder what the young Joe out in Rwanda or Sri Lanka might say to, if, if she was sitting right next to you now, about, in all her naivety, you might say, about where she'd want you to put your effort? Or would she say, no, you're right, it's actually, we've really got to get building the right kind of emissions reduction infrastructure and so on? I have, since around 2007, focused on resilience, thinking about resilience, rather than thinking about mitigation, you know, primarily thinking about resilience, not mitigation. And, you know, that's heavily influenced by Salim Hook, who leads um, an organization called ICAD in Bangladesh. And I met him around 2007. And we were both working on a program in Southeast Asia called the Asian Cities Climate Change Network. And it was looking at how is climate change impacting cities in Southeast Asia? What are the consequences of climate change on cities in Southeast Asia? And how is climate change compounding the issues of poverty and urbanization that were affecting those cities. And in a conversation with Salim, I said, I'm absolutely fascinated by this. And I think that because of some of my background working in disasters, I maybe have something to offer. And he said, I really encourage you to do this. There are not enough people working on adaptation and resilience. So I believe that mitigation is absolutely necessary. You know, we have to be doing everything we can possibly do as fast as possible to reduce carbon emissions. And every little bit counts, and the faster we do it counts. It's not about doing it in 10 years' time, it's about doing it now. But for 20 years, I've been absolutely clear myself that climate change is very real and that the impacts of climate change are being felt already in the world. So I saw the impacts of climate change in cities in Southeast Asia between 2007 and 2015, when this program was running. And I've subsequently seen those impacts in small island states. I've seen those impacts in sub-Saharan Africa. Climate change is real. And it's not just the big, big events, like the floods in Pakistan last year, that receive newspaper headlines. It's actually, you know, smaller events in terms of changing weather patterns and how they're affecting crops or the duration of floods so that, you know, people, people adapt. They manage to cope with their homes flooding. But actually, if the floodwaters aren't receding within a week or so, the problem of flooding is 10 times bigger. And it's this, the reality of climate change affecting day-to-day -day lives. And so my interest is how we can, at the same time as mitigating, put as much effort into building the resilience of those communities who are most impacted by climate change. 
And in the majority of cases, those are communities who haven't contributed much to the problem. And that is sort of social justice for me on a, on a global scale. And I think that that has to be a development agenda, which is why I'm so passionate about sustainable development, because it's not about it's not a defensive agenda. It's not communities just needing to be resilient to climate change. It's communities needing to develop so that they can survive and thrive, whatever the future holds. And recognizing that future is fairly uncertain. So it's about it's it's a positive agenda about empowering, about strengthening communities. You know, we can apply that to communities, but it's also the way we should be thinking about resilience in terms of organizations. When we think about organizations, we should be thinking about how are we making sure that our organizations are stronger? How are they going to be fitter for the future? Because the, the change that's happened during my career over the last 30 years is that we can't predict the future. As well as it being very complex, it's actually uncertain, incredibly uncertain. And I think that that is why the requirements of leaders in today's world, whether they're operating in the private or the public sector, are very, very different. Because instead of leading based on what's gone before, or leading based on having insight into what's going to happen in the future, actually leadership is about empowering people and helping navigate the uncertainty, the uncertainty that's ahead and the pace of change that is around us. And this is this is really interesting, Joe. Can I test uh, an idea with you that I've been mulling over for the last several months around this idea of building resilience? And so much of what you've just been saying really resonates with this, that given that we are going into, we're already in a way, in an era where one crisis lands upon another upon another, is it not a, a useful question to ask of a, a company's leadership, a city's leadership, a community's leadership, a national leadership? What would it be like if we all became really good in a crisis? And that's something that's an individual leadership question. Like what, you know, what would it be if you as a leader, whoever you're talking to, were to become really good in a crisis. And that almost requires a sort of an introspection as well. Where do I panic? Where, where are my blind spots and um, areas of fear and anxiety which disable me as a leader in crisis, particularly existential crisis situations? But then you take it to the organizational level and ask, what would it take for us as an organization or a city to become known as really good in a crisis? I think it's a very important question, Peter, because to me, it's fundamental. It's about if we're going to be good in a crisis, we have to unlock the social capital. So this is what I learned working in the refugee camps during the Rwandan genocide. I arrived in those refugee camps as an engineer thinking that the solutions to problems were technical. I left recognizing that the people there were a significant part of that solution. And a lot of that was about their ability to feel empowered, to unlock their own agency, to be able to make decisions that benefited them and their immediate family and beyond that, their community within the camp. And then the more formal sort of governance and decision making at a sort of camp level. And I think we do overlook that. The other big learning point for me was some work that I did many years ago, sort of around sort of 2007 for the Red Cross Red Crescent agencies. 
looking at what are the characteristics of a resilient community. And we carried out research in four countries in South Southeast Asia. And all we were doing was trying to understand what did the communities perceive as hazards and what are the things that they felt helped them overcome those hazards and also what hindered them because that's helpful too. And through that research, we identified six characteristics of, of the community. But the thing that was very important was at the center of it all was the individual health of people. Because if people are unwell or struggling to survive um, or, in, or in abject poverty, then it's very difficult to be resilient because actually they're using up all their resilience capacity to actually just cope with the day to day. But the second thing was knowledge. And this was knowledge. This was understanding of the types of hazards they might face, but also understanding of where they might go and get help from, their wider relationships, their linkages, their connectivity, whether that's with relatives abroad who could send them you know, money at a times of crisis, or whether that was with local politicians that they could influence, or whether that was with the Red Cross, Red Crescent agencies who were supporting that community. But actually, the ability of every single person to grow up in a, in a world where the, 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 they accept that risk and adversity happens. We don't live in a society where it's safe. Complete safety doesn't exist. We should be raising our children. I believe this passionately, and it's one of my passions is nature-based play because it teaches children about curiosity, but it also teaches them about risk and exploration. And these are the characteristics that we need to breed in people to enable them as individuals to be resilient and then to have an understanding of what is going on in the world around them so that they can predict what's predictable and make their own decisions about what action they want to take or what help they want to get. But then if something unpredictable happens, that they've actually got that agility to respond to it or to absorb it. I think human capital and social capital are fundamental parts of being resilient. And I think, again, it's not just at a community and a city level, it's also at an organizational level. You know, within Arab, in terms of the work that I'm doing, Arab's an organization of 20,000 people almost globally. But if we're going to be resilient as an organization and adapt to the changes around us in the world and provide good advice to our clients, we need to unlock the power of 20,000 people. And that's not a sort of command and control type of leadership from the past. It's a leadership where the senior leadership in the firm need to be unlocking the potential of everyone in the firm, whether it's it's the recent graduates who have joined us who are very concerned about their future or the millennials who are struggling to balance raising their families. Um, you know, they're right in the middle of that with their professional ambitions and responsibilities or whether it's people like myself whose families have grown up. And, you know, we're in a we're in a position where we have a lot of influence within the organization. And it's helping people to understand that actually there is leadership at all levels. You can lead, you can show leadership, you can demonstrate leadership, you know, whether you're 20 or 60. A lot of it is, I think, linked to actually believing that you have agency and that you can make a difference in the community that you're part of, whether that's your family or your professional community your work team, but we can all do something. I'd like to pick up on something you mentioned earlier. So, so we're talking about resilience mindsets, and I totally agree with you. I think 
I think that is where we need to start at. And the question of agency, 100% spot on. Coming back to something you said there, and it struck me about millennials, you know, like they've got a lot on their plate and they're trying to juggle. And I think we can take that broadly. And you would have seen this in your career when you worked in kind of disaster zones, people who are constantly firefighting and children who are kind of coming of age or being raised in an environment where they're constantly faced with adversity. How do we build resilience? And, and what what can community leaders or organizational leaders do with a group of people who have just been constantly firefighting for the last however many years of their life? How do we build resilience in a group that's already kind of battle weary? I think that phrase battle weary is it's very real. I've been very humbled to work in environments where people are living in very, very challenging circumstances. And I'm not just talking about post-disaster situations. I'm talking about informal settlements in Africa, for example. And people are really having to battle every single day simply to put food on the table, to make sure that they've got potable water to drink, to keep a roof over their heads. And it always amazes me, um, particularly the the resilience of the women, you know, their ability to still nurture their families, their ability to save money so they can educate their children. It's astonishing. And then, you know, living in the UK at the moment with the cost of living crisis, we have to accept that we have extreme poverty in our country and a housing crisis. So people are living in really poor circumstances. Um, people are really struggling to put food on the table. So it's not just a, it's just not a problem over there. It's a problem everywhere. And it does use up huge amounts of, of energy, emotional and physical energy, but also time. You know, and time, if you're poor, is something that is very, very precious. And I think we fail to recognize that actually, unless we can get everybody with a decent housing, decent roof over their heads, access to potable water and sanitation, overcome nutrition deficits and access to decent food and warmth or cooling, depending on what part of the world you're in. The real basics. We can't get to a resilient future. And in the work that the Rockefeller Foundation kindly supported, which was um, it was research that I did over three years to think about city resilience, you know, we came up with um, a conceptualization of city resilience which is captured in the City Resilience Index. And that's got sort of four dimensions to it. And the first is the health and well-being of everyone in the city. Because unless everyone in the city is actually up to a basic level, then how can you have a resilient city overall? You know, you've got you've got you know weak, weak places in it. You know, the other dimensions were. The, the social structures and financial structures that enable people in the city to work collectively and ad, act peacefully. So it includes the justice systems. And then, of course, the infrastructure, both the, the physical infrastructure that engineers build, but also the blue and the green infrastructure, the environment, which is an important part of the provision of water and cooling cities, provision of food. And then the last bit was actually around planning and governance in the city. So it got, got to the more formal structures. But I think people 
fail to realize that resilience is not the consequence of a sort of one-time, one-off action. It is the consequence of all the actions and decisions that have been made up until that moment. And so you can't you can't create resilience overnight. You know, you have to build it up in in layers. So what I'm hearing there, Joe, in, in what you just said is that from a leader's perspective, building resilience is a patient strategic work. It's a life's work in a way, if you're in the sense that your career within a particular organization as a leader, you're going to spend all of it building the kind of resilience you're talking about because it is such a layered process. And there's a little voice in my head that says, yeah, but that's a little bit idealistic when we are living in such depleted times in the sense, uh, not both depleted in the sense that all around the world, politics has kind of run out of good energy. And there's so much physical pressure that I think Shazri was referring to. And so the reality, I think, for most leaders is that they're going to get buffeted by the next crisis. And so this kind of patient building, rather like sustainable development, which which used to be such a glorious concept, there was so much hope in sustainable development. And I think now it doesn't ring so, I'm being perhaps a little provocative here, but I, I don't think it rings quite so true now because we can't see a pathway certainly not a sort of a straight upward progressive pathway to these sustainable, well-developed, everybody getting all their needs met societies. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm slightly challenging the... There's a lot of different bits to that, I think, Peter. What's changed is that the idea of sustainability, sustainable development, started with the recognition that we had this growing population and we only had one planet. And this growing population and the growing needs of that population and one planet, that's an equation that was not going to balance in the longer term. So that's where we started. And in the same way, organizations have tended over the last 20 years, 30 years, to be focused on efficiency and maximizing profit. It's it's a sort of balancing act. It's trying to get to an equilibrium situation. I think the difference that we're facing now is simply turbulence. You know, we're accepting that we've got a situation where our climate is compromised, the health and the well-being of our planet in terms of nature, and that's not just biodiversity, that's land, that's water, that's the oceans, that's the air as well, is compromised. And then within a business environment, we're facing these disruptions. You know, whether they're a pandemic, a war in Ukraine, cost of living crises, inflation suddenly going through the roof. And this is turbulence. And this is turbulence associated with the stresses that the wider system that we're living in, which is a you know planetary system, is facing. I don't believe that's turbulence that's going away. I also don't believe that you can just put all your that we should be just putting all our effort into thinking about the turbulence. We have to imagine what a sustainable future looks like. We have to have a vision for where we want to get to ultimately, even though we may recognize that what's going to happen between now and then, it's a very bumpy road. So I think the sustainable development goals are very important because they paint a picture of what we need to strive for by 2030. 
recognizing that's not enough. But if we do that, we will be on the type of trajectory we need to be on in order to get to a truly sustainable future. And a truly sustainable future is one where we've moved to a very, very different way of living, where we have a circular economy, not a linear economy. So we're not constantly depleting the Earth's resources, that we've kept climate change below one and a half degrees. So we haven't completely disrupted the planetary systems. We need that guiding star in order for everyone to be able to to see hope in the future and to be able to collaborate and move together in the same direction. And without that, everyone's got their own view about what that future looks like. And even for a firm like Arab, we've had a, a mission statement about two decades now, which is Arab's mission is to shape a better world. And we've had arguments internally over the years about well, what does better look like? From whose perspective is it better? Whereas now we've come to a view as a firm that better by 2030 looks like the sustainable development goals. I love this idea, Joe, of a guiding star. And I wonder if we could reflect for a moment on how we talk about our future, particularly when it comes to the climate crisis. Because it's so easy to latch on to a doom and gloom scenario where we picture this cascade of disasters, right? Massive floods, wildfires, rising waters, the whole lot. And there are places in the world that are already experiencing this, so it's not that far off from reality. But it's also so easy then to either sink into a defeatist mindset or retreat into full-blown denial. And, and both of these approaches are equally detrimental because we really can't afford to take our foot off the pedal at this point. You've got more experience than most of us at the sharper end of major disasters. Can you tell us what you've learned about how we can best think about and talk about the future that is grounded in reality, but doesn't trigger this instinctive flight response in others? I've worked in a number of, of really horrifying sort of post-disaster situations, whether you know natural hazards like earthquakes or the genocide in Rwanda or tsunamis. And you can look at those and say they're really awful situations. But there's also something very inspiring about them, because I've seen the way people in adversity really pull together and fight for survival. You know, we really fight for survival. I think we have to take a you know intelligent approach. I think also we do have to reconnect as a human species with the other living species on the planet. And I think it's very difficult for us as a human race to lead our way out of this crisis unless we really authentically understand it. And that is about really believing deeply and understanding deeply that we as human beings cannot exist on this planet unless we can create a more symbiotic relationship with our fellow human beings and with other living species and the biodiversity and other resources that the planet provides for us. I sometimes talk about, you know, what does it need to be a leader? You, you know, we need to be authentic as leaders. I think that's fundamentally incredibly important. We need to be clear about our agency, our contribution, the contribution that we're really, really trying to make. 
we need to be aware of what the problem really is about. Who's affected by climate change? Who's responsible for taking action? If we just talk about it from a distance without thinking about who is responsible for doing what, who is affected, it, it becomes an abstract and intellectual problem. And I also think that we really have to be, as leaders, bolder and braver about talking openly and honestly about you know, where we are on the journey. And that's not about being doom and gloom, because at the moment where we are on the journey, I can project to 30 years hence, when I exit stage left, in 30 years time, there are several alternative futures. One is pretty bleak, but the others are still open to us. And that's what I mean by manning the lifeboats on the Titanic. I've chosen to man the lifeboats rather than carry on dancing in the ballroom. If I really believed there was doom and gloom, I'd probably just dance in the ballroom. But actually, the more people who get out there and man the lifeboats, the more chance there is that some people will survive or suffer less. And there will be a better future. And as far as I'm concerned, that's worth striving for. Thank you, Joe. I think that is exactly the kind of hope for the future, for a future that's resilient. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. And thank you to our audience. This is one of a series of conversations we're having in this topic. So if you are interested and you enjoyed our chat with Joe today, please subscribe below and you'll be notified when the next podcast is ready. See you then.